Hello, everybody. It is uh, Wednesday, the 6th of September, 2017, and my beard needs a trim. But besides that, it's the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Hope you guys are doing well. I'm very happy to be joined by you. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of this podcast here on uh, MMA Fighting. That's a terrible intro. All right, today on the podcast, we'll get to whatever questions you have, but I'm imagining the predominant topics are going to be around UFC 215, which, of course, takes place on Saturday. Uh, Demetrius Johnson could break the all-time title defense record, so there's that. Uh, in addition, sort of Nate Diaz seems to be a little bit more active with the saber rattling, and I guess that brings up the question of Conor McGregor's next move. We'll see what happens with that and when he gets back to action. So that could be kind of interesting as well. Plus, whatever else you have on your mind, there are a lot of sort of, there's a bunch of actually little stories happening in the sport right now, none of which are necessarily all that big, but many interesting in their own right. So all of those are up for grabs as well. Best place to get your questions in, of course, is going to be on MMAfighting.com, where this window is embedded. Yes. Okay. Uh... I have not had my morning coffee yet. I know it's one in the afternoon, but I was up super late working on a project. Oh, that is delicioso. All right, let's get to these questions, shall we? Let's do it now. All right. Let's see. First one. Trilogy. Everything from public demand and talks in the media, also both fighters wanting it, points to a third fight between Nate and Connor happening. Which is good for me as a Diaz fan. And I truly believe that if Nate's preparation goes as it did for the Michael Johnson fight, he will wreck Connor. This is his words, not mine. But can UFC do this? At this point, it would be hard to be surprised at anything. But let's just picture this. One of the factors that affects this fight is the interim title fight between Ferguson and Lee, which, of course, takes place in October. Now, if it's a war, the UFC can make the trilogy in December while the winner takes a break. But what if the winner of the interim title comes out fresh and demands his shot at the belt? That's actually the least of my concerns. It, <clears throat> you've got this interim title for Connor, not because he's not been healthy, but because he has been boxing I mean, just think about how crazy that sounds. Now, he's been active. He's been making money for the company. But in terms of the stewardship typically required for holding a UFC belt, he's been quite an absentee landlord. I mean, I don't know how you can argue with that, right? I mean, you could say there's a good reasons for being an absentee landlord, and I would agree with you. But um, just as it relates to that particular function, he has, uh, he has been a little bit gone. So um, to me, the bigger question is, not whether he fights Diaz. I don't see how you don't do the Diaz fight. That one is the most lucrative. Meritocratically, it doesn't rank anywhere near the top of the food chain, but um, it, it's the one you do. To me, it's less the issue of, well, what if Ferguson and Lee come out healthy? What if somebody gets starched 30 seconds in and they want to fight? Hard to see that as a relevant consideration here. To me, the bigger consideration is not merely that you have to make the Diaz fight, uh, given Connor's likely proclivities, but that you have to make it in a way that is financially worth Connor's time. So in other words, uh, they could restructure things and keep the basic blueprint for how they pay him and just adjust the model accordingly to give him more money, or he could double down on uh, ownership. 
wanting a piece of the ownership. I mean, think about this for just a second. You had the big John Jones UFC 214 pay-per-view, but that is now at least for the time being, we don't know what's going to happen, but for the time being, that appears to be on ice at least for a little while, right? Um, were it not for the McGregor pay-per-view this year, and again, the Jones pay-per-view was big at UFC 214, but aside from that, I mean, there's been nothing else even remotely close. Um, and if John is really on ice for one to two to three to four years, and you're McGregor, you're saying to yourself, if you have any hope of making money on this thing, you need me to do it. So to me, um, that there could be a ready, available interim champ, while under normal circumstances would put weight on matters to force it in that direction, I really don't see it that way this time. Connor is sort of in his own orbit that even interim title holders can't really touch. Uh, and the DS fight is the most lucrative to make. It, the question is, uh, how are they going to find a way to make it worth Connor's time? And I think that they will, actually. I don't, if there was anything that came out of that scrum with Dana at the Ultimate Fighter Gym on the, on the day that the John Jones news broke, it was that they do seem at least open to the idea of doing things differently with him. I think they've realized the, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube with him. There's no more denying that they're, they're not working as partners anymore. Uh, whenever like Randy Couture or John Fitch, two guys who, who had very successful MMA careers in the case of Randy Couture, an incredibly successful one, whenever they make an argument about employees versus independent contractors, there's always this uh, hurdle they have to overcome. Pardon me. It's very good coffee. Um, and the hurdle is they have to make this intellectual argument that, no, no, no. What what really is happening here is I am the partner of the fight promoter. I am not his employee. And if I'm his employee, I need to be entitled to a lot more benefits than I'm getting. What you're really looking at is partners. And there's a sort of equitability there. But that's really an argument at scale, right? It's the promoter, this giant corporate entity, is the partner with the fighters as a group. Now, yes, it might be true individually, um, also in an academic sense, but that's how most people would be able to convince you of that argument, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna sell it to somebody, you're gonna sell it as we are not, we are not his employees or their employees. We are their partners, and as independent contractors, um, there's a certain degree of power sharing. And I think a lot of people fell on deaf ears whenever most fighters tried to make it like I am the partner of them. But I don't think it falls on deaf ears when McGregor makes that comment anymore. And I don't think the I don't think the UFC can even try to pretend otherwise. They would used to say they used to say things like if it wasn't for us, nothing would sell, blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, you need that brand on there. And 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 many of these arguments are even still true about how the brand, the UFC letters carry weight and that they have this promotional muscle and that they're the ones that have these existing relationships with these MSOs and these ticket holders and blah, blah, blah. Like, th there is a lot to be said for how true that argument is. Uh, but with McGregor, it's not really true anymore. This is not true that, um, uh, I mean, it's so clear that he is so powerful that he is absolutely 100% their partner, partner, that I think that there needs to be some adjustment to the business realities to reflect that. And I think until those are met, um, there might be some, I don't know, if, I hope not a delay. I mean, what was it now? September. So you have this month, October, November, you know, 
they want it to fire at the end of December, which means they'd have to have two months to figure this out. Maybe. Maybe they'll get that done. But it, it may be that they won't get that fight done and something else will have to go. They'll push that fight back into 2018. Something else will have to take up that was a UFC 219 spot uh, in December. That, to me, is the biggest consideration. Like the, the, He is so powerful uh, by his own making and uh, by the UFC's willingness to indulge him that this is where we are. So can't be mad at him. Someone says, no two ways about it. The UFC treats the interim belts like trash. Well, so do the fans. The, well, that's not true. The fans are weird. On the one hand, it's like these belts don't matter. On the, on the other hand, I cannot say how many people I spoke to who filled up that, a survey that the UFC asked them to fill out, and they said, uh, yes, it matters to me greatly that there's a title fight on the pay-per-view. Well, I mean, which is it, you know? Whitaker is the interim champ, so logically they booked Bisping against a different guy who has never fought at middleweight before. He's also injured. I think we'll see the same thing at lightweight when they book the trilogy and pass over the winner of Ferguson Lee. They definitely are. The interim belts mean nothing to the UFC. It's simply a marketing tool meant to trick casuals. Ban hardcores. Uh, Diaz 3, winner of Ferg Lee, then Paul Lee boxing match. Please, God, I would rather I would rather eat a bucket of scorpions than watch that boxing match. If he wins them all, if he loses to Diaz, then it's Holloway. If he can even cut to 145 anymore. I don't know if he can. I mean, that 153, he looked bad. Uh, or Paulie. There's a good... He didn't look bad at 153, but he looked like... He didn't look like he looked at 205, at UFC 205. I'll put it that way. There's a good chance he loses to Diaz at 155. Diaz will be more hungry, hungrier. In the rubber match, Connor already looks gaunt cutting to 155, but he looks like he is knocking on death's door at 145. So what this person says, I am predicting we see Diaz versus Lee lightweight title unification uh, after Diaz beats Connor and then Lee beats Ferguson. If Diaz beats Connor, they're going to do a fourth fight. <laughs> you might be like, a fourth fight? I can't believe it. Fourth and fifth rematches in boxing are some of the most lucrative ones. Look at the look at the relationship between Juan Manuel Marquez and Manny Pacquiao. How many times did they fight? Five times? Uh, you can do it. You can absolutely do it. They, you can. I mean, that was over the span of a career even across several weight classes but uh you can do it it is it is very possible you can definitely do it right status of ufc fight pass hi luke now that dana white tuesday night contender series has been active for a few weeks it's like eight weeks wasn't it it's off now though we've had a recent number we've had a recent reminder september 2nd of a fight pass exclusive card I was wondering if your stance on the status of the USC subscription service has changed. I'm not sure what you mean. I feel that the Tuesday Night Contender series has been a success thus far. Absolutely. But with lackluster fight cards on UFC Fight Pass, do you think fans should be paying for this additional service? There are many fight cards taking place almost every weekend with mostly superior fights to the Fight Pass exclusive ones. Is the Contender series enough to get UFC fans to pay for additional content with Fight Pass? It is merely a building block. It is not the answer. It cannot. It could not be the answer. Um, the only answer. Okay, so I don't, I don't know what when, when someone says, "Is your stance on the status of UFC's subscription service has changed?" I'm not sure what they're referring to specifically. But as you note, I uh, I put out a video when the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender series was announced on my personal YouTube channel for my radio show talking about why I thought it was a really good idea. Now, some of the things I thought they were going to do with it, they didn't. Namely, that if you were a UFC fighter looking for a rebound fight, you would take one there. 
you would be risking your future, but you'd also be getting a potentially much easier fight. They have not done that. Um, I don't know if they're going to do that. You might say, well, look, they would never do that. But then James Cross was on the ultimate fighter. So that seems kind of unusual as well. Um, so they didn't do that. But, but the key insight to that was namely that um, if you look at some of their screaming numbers, as I understand them, and I've, you know, this is through a source, but my understanding is the numbers are really good for what you would imagine they would be good for live content they own. So for obviously their uh, UFC cards, like the Rotterdam card, they do really well for that. Invicta, I'm told, does really good numbers. And so does the Contender Series. And I'm told the Contender Series does even better on replay. I'm not sure why it does better on replay, but it does. Uh, although I guess I can understand it. You might, not, you, might, you might not be able to like carve out time, depending on where you are in the world, for that. But then you could catch up for it later because it goes so fast. So I'm told the replay numbers combined with the live numbers of um, the Contender Series are superb. And this all makes sense. Because this is really what this is really what it's about. Having a library of fights there, as I told you before, I think that MMA is much more likely to have that be made useful than uh, other sports. Um, but it's still not going to be the answer to you know, video on demand is not going to be the answer for them. It's going to be the live content. And it has to be live content centered around the brand. So you can air all the Shuto Brazils and uh, Titan fights you want. And those guys do get signed to the UFC, but it's not, it's the relationship is tangential, not direct. And I think that directness is really what the key issue is there. Plus, as it stands, the other argument was your premium content, if you're the UFC, goes on where? Two places, one, pay-per-view. And then the other one, typically, it goes on uh, free TV. You have had a title fight on Fight Pass before, um, I believe, right? Wasn't the wasn't the Alvarez versus Dos Anjos fight on Fight Pass? I believe that it was. In any case, you've had some bigger ones on there, and so uh, you, it's not that you don't have quality, but you don't have the premium stuff on balance. So as long as you're not going to have the premium stuff, you're going to have to find other ways to be creative. And so putting the occasional exclusive Fight Pass event on there getting Invicta, and you know the people who do well in Invicta all go to the UFC, and the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series, I mean, there are women who fight on those cards, but it's almost like a male Invicta, where the people who do well on that, you know you know you're going to see them in the UFC later. You know it, right? Um, that's what matters. But the, the, the key consideration here is it's still not the premium content that the, that the company produces. That still is given to other outlets because those are, to date, more monetizable. Eventually, you're going to have to do what the WWE does, uh, where they just said, we're just going to go all in. Now, obviously, they still have some content that airs on television, and I don't know the ins and outs of the WWE business model, but I do know that there was this initial concern that they had made this giant jump into um, their network, their online network, and this had upset a number of other cable providers and pay-per-view providers, and that's understandable. And those, again, I think they still have some free content on television. But they just kind of went all in. And you can still buy their pay-per-views on television in the more common linear way, but they're not really they're not really worried about it anymore. Their premium content, not exclusively, but in a very significant way, is online, streaming online through the network. Until the UFC makes that jump, I can't say that they've made some... Gen I mean, unless they... Unless they purchased Bellator and put Bellator on Fight Pass or something, and I'm just thinking out loud here, like unless they did something so crazy like that, the key consideration you always have to keep asking yourself is where is the premium content going? Generally, 
and generally the premium content is pay-per-view and television. Whether it's worth it to you, I can't say. I mean, I have to purchase all these things just for my job, so I'm almost like immune from these common considerations. Someone says, you can't even watch the Ultimate Fighter 26 on Fight Pass. Have to wait until the season is over, I guess. What a joke. Yeah, because the television company has the rights to it. Someone says, Fight Pass and Netflix are roughly the same price. I dumped Netflix. Fight fans dream. You can watch and Gracie Main Event Pride 1. Or you can watch two guys from some forgotten undercard slug it out. It's the best thing the UFC has ever done, and I'm not sure they realize it. I think it can be the best. I think it is the future. Exclusive home to all their stuff? No, I think they'll eventually still keep things spread around, but I do think it's the future. It's just they're 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 slow to move into that space. Uh, and given the year that they've had, I can understand that. You can see why they haven't jumped all in. If they get to a point where they've got this incredible amount of stars, even then they might be reluctant because then they're going to say, why not strike while the iron is hot on pay-per-view? But um, on a down year, is not the time to then go into total online streaming. Quite the opposite. Uh, okay. The Injicek Technique Talk. Yes, if you guys didn't see on Monday, my Technique Talk with Stephen Wright, who is the former striking coach for um, Team Takedown. I think he still does a little bit of work with Johnny Hendricks, although not as much as he used to, but don't quote me on that. But I know he is the proprietor of War Room MMA. He's got some other fighters that he helps out and trains. Junior Frey goes there. Kamaru Usman goes there. Other people moonlight there. Kamaru Usman's still in Florida. I'm just saying they moonlight there. Um, and uh, to me, most underrated coach in MMA, bar none. Bar none. I think if you guys watched the Mayweather-McGregor preview that I did with Lamont Peterson or Brandon Gibson, and those guys are all... Those guys are, uh, they get the credit they deserve. Lamont is a champion. Brandon Gibson has this incredible reputation, which he also deserves. Uh, what I'm saying is Stephen Wright, people don't know who he is. And every time I talk to this guy, I learn a lot. I learn a lot. So I was really hoping to include him. And I, I, it seemed like there was positive response. Uh, someone says, I enjoyed reading the recent technique talk on Ian Jacek. And congrats on the good work. Thank you very much. What was the most revealing or surprising insight from Wright from your perspective? That's a great question. Um, people in MMA are very, fans of Ian Jacek are very reluctant to acknowledge some of her flaws. And, and here's what I mean by that. She is obviously a tremendous talent. I did an entire technique talk on her because I was so blown away by what she was able to do at UFC 211. And I wanted to get Steven Wright on there, not merely because he is uh, erudite and um, a great coach, or again, I think it's just sadly underrated but more than that Ian Jacek's career has been a topic of fascination for him he has followed her for uh, throughout her kickboxing career and into MMA um and so he had I thought relative to everyone else in MMA a pretty unique insight on how who she was what was her reputation before how she got here and what to expect going forward and to me it wasn't anything super revelatory that I hadn't thought of exactly um, in terms of the things he said that she didn't do well. It was just the acknowledgement from a deep admirer of hers to say as much. Look, she had the great win over Carla Esparza, and obviously she mauled Jessica Penny. 
But she is the kind of fighter, typically, typically, who wins rounds. She's a round fighter. Uh, and people want to talk about her like she's some marauding destroyer. She can be if there's a lopsided skill set. But against the very, very best of her division, fight in, fight out, it's probably not going to be that way. And so to me, it was just clarifying what kind of style does Yin Jacek really employ? She employs typically a lot of stick and move. Uh, if you give it to her, she'll tear you to pieces. But that's just not necessarily who she is. And apparently it's not who she was in kickboxing either. She's a, she's a round fighter. She wins rounds. That's that's how she succeeds. And so that is a, that is a, it's an interesting admission because if you listen to some of her critics these days, not her admirers who understand her goods and her bads, but the people who don't like her, however minimal in number they may be and how loathsome as creatures they might also be. Um, but they'll say something kind of interesting. They'll say, look, she just wins rounds. She doesn't. She doesn't, you know, you know, when she fights, unless it's, again, some kind of lopsided contest, she's going to go 25 minutes. So what does that tell you? That tells you it's a sorting issue, right? It's a sorting issue. You have people who can admire her game for its incredible, um, it's hard to be a round fighter. It's super hard. You have to have the cardio to go 25 minutes every time. Your drop off from the first to the fifth round can only be slight. You know, you have to, and you have to know that about yourself and you have to know you have to have excellent defense and you have to be mentally tough and you have to be committed to a game plan. It's, it's a lot like Floyd Mayweather. Now, the McGregor fight, notwithstanding, Floyd was a round fighter, at least in the latter stage of his career. You have to be exactly there. You have to really dial in and you have to be committed to a game plan. That's very, 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 very difficult to do. Um, and she's able to do it. And I think she, obviously she's a little more entertaining than Floyd Mayweather was in certain ports of his the latter stages of his career. I'm simply saying there's a little bit of similarity there. And then on the other hand, you people are like, ah, if there's not a knockout, you're really not sort of, there's no, there's no imminent threat. I'm not interested in, look, I cannot tell you how to enjoy MMA. You're going to enjoy it on the terms that you enjoy it. But to me, it's a, it, it sorts people who have to me a, a little bit more of a finer appreciation of the game. If you don't, if you look, look, if you find it boring, it does not mean you're not a good fan. That's not what I'm saying. But I think in general, if you can take it back a step and you can say, uh, there's more to the story than just the knockouts. What is that story for all its goods, for all its bads, for all its nuances? Um, that's probably the side of the sport I will trend towards more. And so for me, that acknowledgement that it dovetailed with the critics, but in a wholly different, like almost in a positive way, uh, to me was the big insight there. It was an admission of who she is. And in that admission, you find strength and you find you find this the several other layers by which to appreciate her game. And uh, it takes a guy like Stephen Wright to pull that out, I think. Joanna versus Cyborg. I mean, no, it's not going to happen. Way too much. I know it's not a feasible matchup, but Joanna is so good. If we could shrink Cyborg to a natural 115, I think Joanna and Jacek would win. If it stood on the feet, yes. Not, I mean, because the thing about Cyborg is people forget she's got good wrestling. You know, she's really good on the ground. Um, but on the feet, yeah, maybe so. The other interesting revelation there is that Shevchenko has a very different style from her. Now, Shevchenko is naturally bigger, too. But apparently Shevchenko has her number. Uh, every time they face, Shevchenko has won in, in, in Muay Thai. So... Keep that 
give them mine for what it's worth. And Shevchenko, man, I saw her out in, in, uh, in uh, for Mayweather McGregor. I, I mean, Amanda Nunes, she's uh, you. You would be so foolish to discount her, so foolish to discount her. And I'm not. But what I am saying is, you want to talk about somebody dialed in? Shevchenko looks ready to go, folks. Super ready to go. Incredible shape. Has been training this whole time. Um, doesn't seem bothered at all by what happened in UFC 213 other than whatever frustrations that amounted there seek to fuel her. Saturday is going to be interesting. Uh, let's see. Wait, not a lot of green comments today. Oh, I'll answer this one. Uh, hey, Luke, what's up with your buddy, Craig Carton? He got arrested this morning. Did you guys see this? I woke up this morning. Mike Fagan had tagged me in a tweet from the big lead. Craig Harton, uh, who is the host of the uh, Boomer and Carton show on WAFN, which is like maybe the most important spo uh, sports talk radio show, or excuse me, the most important sports talk station in the country. It's the it's the one in New York. Uh, and he's been hosting that show for 10 years. And before that, had some big shows in, all over the country. This dude got arrested for allegedly... Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the, the crime is here, but apparently he had a allegedly phony ticket company where they took investors' money claiming they had access to tickets for either concert venues or sporting games. I'm not exactly sure. that Their details are sparse, but apparently they didn't have it. So it's something of a Ponzi scheme or, or I, I don't know what the exact charges are, but let me pull this up just so I don't I quit talking out of my ass on this one. Uh I mean, it was shocking. WAFN is in a massive bind now. That's putting it mildly. Uh, but that's right. Mike Frances's deal is going to expire in December. Oh, my God. All right, so here's what. Oh, my God. Craig Carton has racked up $3 million in gambling debt per federal complaint. Boomer and Carton co-host Craig Carton was arrested early Wednesday morning, charged with federal wire and securities crime. Jesus Christ, man. Carton and his partner, Joseph Melly, allegedly ran a multi-million dollar fake ticket scam. Carton chalked up, apparently, deep gambling debt, $3 million to casinos and outside parties. Around the time the business began in 2016, the criminal complaint, excuse me, the criminal complaint states... Uh, Carton, according to the complaint, falsely claimed to investors that he and Melly had access to millions of dollars worth of concert tickets at face value. Officials said the pair provided forged documents to investors that appeared to show agreements to buy tickets from venues and promoters to concerts by artists such as Katy Perry, Justin Bieber, Metallica, Adele, and Barbara Streisand. Yikes. So that's what he is alleged to have done. I don't I don't know. I don't have any comment about that because I don't know anything about that. But um, Craig's always been really good to me. He was good to me on that show on MMA Uncensored. I know a lot of you guys didn't like him. I don't feel like that was a fair representation of who he was, at least who he was to me. Um, I hadn't seen him from that point until that we had a rap party for the show back in 2012. I saw him once at Mayweather Pacquiao for like five minutes. He was there with Boomer for doing the show. And then I saw him at Bellator NYC. He did the ring announcing for one fight, I think the Valor fight which is where they have the veterans fight. I don't know what to say about this, man. It breaks my heart, to be to be quite honest. Um, 
MMA fans never really understood who he was, understand, and, and I don't think the show set him up to be understood, so I don't even blame them. He has a certain appeal. It works really well on sports radio. In MMA, we've talked about this with the Snoopcast and other things. The community is a lot more sensitive here. It just is. Everyone gets mad at everybody else for a lot of really bad reasons, or at least flimsy ones or minimal ones anyway. And when Carton tried to spar with fighters, you had this outsider coming in. And when I say spar, I mean verbally. Uh, he had this outsider coming in trying to, to verbally spar with fighters, and that's what he does on the radio, and it works in sports generally. It doesn't really work in MMA, and I think he pissed a lot of fans off. But, you know, absent these alleged charges, uh, I can just tell you he was always super friendly to me. And, uh, in fact, um, you know, he put in a good word for me and various people in um, the radio industry, which really helped me out, so... I'm just really sad to hear it, to be honest, because, you know, if it's true, it's, you know, unforgivable. And if it's not true, I'm sorry he got dragged through the mud. But either way, it's just you never like to see people who are really good to you have bad things happen to them, even if maybe they brought it on themselves. And it appears he has. Um. I said Pedro is fighting this weekend. Super excited about that. Lucas, we all know the UFC 205 division is one of the weakest, if not the weakest, the UFC has to offer. Uh, mo mostly recycled fights left in the top 10. Tyson Pedro, however, has been a favorite of mine since his debut in November. With two impressive wins over the new talent, uh, with other new talent, excuse me, like Roundtree and Paul Craig, where does a win over Latifi put him in the UFC 205 division? I think it might even bump him to the top 10, if I is not mistaken. Because that division is hollowed out like a canoe. Yeah, Tyson Page is at 13. Latifi's at 10. I mean, that's a pretty simple answer, man. He goes in there and put, beats the brakes off Latifi, if that's possible. Uh, Ryan Bader did, of course. And uh, good things are going to happen to him. I can, I can guarantee you that. I think he'll jump into the top 10 no matter what. Tyson Pedro appears to be the genuine article. Uh, we'll see. He's got some work left to do to prove it to us. But, man, uh, young, athletic, composed, has a just a – there are certain guys out there that have a nose for violence. And what I mean by that is in any kind of scenario they're in, whether it's on the ground or whether it's on top, in the clinch, at distance – they have a sense of when it's better for them to throw and not throw, when they need to get up, when they don't need to get up, or if they need to get up, when they need to get up, right? It's one thing to know that you should get up. It's another thing to know at what particular moment that needs to be. And more importantly, what Tyson Pedro has is at various intervals, just the right moment to sniff out an opening with a strike. If you're lazy with your defenses, a lot of guys will let it go for the safety of a interlocking position or... So something else there. Pedro has a nose for just crushing you. You've got a really, really, really good combative sense about what's opening, what's appropriate, how should I proceed calmly, matter-of-factly, scientifically, accurately. He, he appears to be good. Now, we'll see you know, what it looks like when his cardio gets tested. We'll see what it looks like when someone finds a portion of the game that's not his best because that is inevitable. And it, you, Whenever you like someone in MMA... Remember to always ask yourself, have they faced every different kind of challenge yet to really have their game revealed? We had this big debate, of course, about Conor McGregor, to what extent he had some weaknesses. Um, 
And it's a, we had the same debate about John Jones coming up. Of course, he kind of answered all those pretty quickly. But you have it with Fedor. You have it with, with anybody. Anybody who's coming up, have they been properly vetted is the way I would look at it. He has not been thoroughly vetted. He's been partially vetted. And through that vetting process, he has shined quite dramatically. But there's still some ways to go, uh, significantly ways to go. But a lot of reasons for optimism with him. He He is nasty. He is nasty. Holloway Edgar. I have not heard anything about this. Is Holloway Edgar actually happening? I thought so, and then both guys went radio silent as it relates to that. I haven't seen an official announcement yet, and I'm wondering what the holdup is. Do you know? I don't. It's a good question. Surely this is the fight which makes the most sense in the division right now. Also, what do you make of Aldo versus Lamas being announced? Was Aldo Lamas formally announced? I thought it was hinted at. Let's see. Yeah, I don't think it was announced. I think it was hinted at. And I'd be fine with it. Uh, Aldo wants to keep competing. Lamas had a super solid win over Jason Knight at UFC 214. Um, he's been looking good recently anyway. E even in the Holloway fight, he lost, but he didn't get super blown out. Um, he lost cleanly, but he didn't get, like, drubbed. He got maybe a little bit drubbed in the first Aldo fight, but he, you know, made a decent account of himself, I suppose. And you can always fight better on the second time around, if it's not the main event, if it's not for an interim title, it'll be three rounds, which means you can go a little bit more of a sprint. Um, sure. Sure, I'm okay with it. Is it the most exciting fight on the calendar? No, but they don't all have to be. They just have to make sense. And yeah, for the division, for the fighters, for the talent, for the card. And if it happens at MSG, sure. Woodley McGregor. Here's an interesting question. Do you think Woodley McGregor is the most logical matchup next for both men? The most logical? No, but intriguing, yes. I thought it last year when McGregor announced time off after 205, but I never once envisaged he'd be able to put up a fight with Mayweather at the time. Now he has done that. Do you think uh, that him going to the welterweight belt would make the most sense in terms of accomplishments for McGregor. Do you think Woodley and Dana's recent seemingly disagreement will go against Woodley in this? Look, if Connor wants it, what is Dana going to say? You know, Connor's going to sell any fight he's in. And if Connor can sell Woodley as the opponent to fight, he will. I think the more interesting question is less this one, and I put out a video about it earlier, is about um, what weight should the rematch between Diaz and McGregor take, um, the, the rubber match? between Diaz and McGregor take place at. Of course, first two ones, as we all know, were at 170. First one by accident, given the late notice. Second one by design. He has said, McGregor, that the fight should take place at 155, and I think that's an attempt to um, take away any perceived size advantages that Diaz has. I think some of those size advantages are terribly over-dramatized, but be that as it may, I don't have to go fight Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor does. So if he wants on 155, that's fine. Um the thing to consider is that if they have it at 170, two things are available to you. One, if he loses at 170, you can still go back um, and defend your crown at 155. So you can say, well, Luke, this was totally, you know, circumvents any notion of meritocracy. I'm not, I'm not telling you it's what I want. I'm merely providing some options for you in the down here. All right. 
The other one is, more interestingly, what if he goes and does well against Diaz there? Do they make the Tyron Woodley fight? You could do that. But I, 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 in the end, I think it's not a favorable matchup for McGregor. Woodley is huge. He's a huge guy. He also was in Vegas. I've seen him up close a number of times. But, dude, Woodley's a, spe Woodley's a specimen, all right? He's a monster guy, okay? And I just don't know that's a good idea for him. I think he'd be able to eat Connor shots and take him down at will. And we've seen one of the big revelations from the um, Wonder Boy fights is that Maybe he wasn't as willing to pull the trigger as he was previously, but when he takes you down, Tyron Woodley has savage ground and pound. He's a very heavy hitter, either standing or on the ground. Um, but so, so I don't know that you make that one. But depending on what happens with GSP, if he loses to Bisping, uh, you could just write it off as a four-year absence. You could do a Conor McGregor fight at 170. Now, you... I don't know that you need to make the DS fight at 170 to do that. I mean, we're in an age now where you can just sort of figure out whatever you want, but it at least makes him less. Um, he doesn't have to adjust his body back and forth as much. He's been playing with weight classes a lot. 155 at 205. He was at 145 for how many years? Then he jumps up, you know, he fights one or he'll fight 170 before that goes down to 155. So this guy's been going to 145, 170, 155, 154 which is still a little bit different, different kind of cardio, different kind of training. And what I'm saying is you might be saying, well, look, going back to 170 is a dramatic, more dramatic jump than just going back to 155. And you're, of course, right about that. Again, I am merely providing options. I'm not, I am not advocating for these. I'm, I'm just saying it's things that need to be considered. If you do that, then you at least can provide some consistency against Diaz in terms of the nature of the rivalry. And uh, it would make things easier for any kind of potential George St. Pierre fight. Um, should they should they go in that direction? And you can say, well, what do these have to do with meritocracy? Again, advocate for whatever you want to advocate. I'm merely exploring possibilities, particularly in the down year of directions the UFC might want to go. Because if GSP is going to go to 185, that is a monster drop to 155 and would take some time. Uh, rather than if you just go to 170, you wouldn't have to do that, uh, at least as much, obviously. So just something to consider there. UFC 215, what fights are you most interested in? This is a good question. Let me pull up the fight card because I do not know it by memory, but I do like it. All right, obviously the main event and the co-main event. I mean, these were title fights, right? So, boy, that whole main card is pretty good. So Demetrius Johnson versus Ray Borg. Amanda Nunes versus Valentina Shevchenko. Super good. Neil Magny versus Rafael Dos Anjos. Very good. It's a welterweight, obviously. Elir Latifi versus Tyson Pedro. Could be Tyson Pedro's coming out moment. We'll see. Jeremy Stevens at featherweight versus the returning Gilbert Melendez. That should be kind of fun. Sarah McMahon, now on the prelim card, versus Ketlin Vieira. That's okay. Henry Cejudo versus Wilson Hayes. Very good fight. Sarah Morass versus uh, Ashley Evans-Smith. It's worth... Um, should be an action fight. And then Gavin Tucker, who was that really talented kid out of Nova Scotia, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Very, very smart, cerebral kid. Take it on Rick Glenn, who was a former World Series of Fighting champion in that weight class. So that should be an interesting contest as well. Then you move to Fight Pass. Uh, Mitch Clark taking on... Sorry, my screen here. Mitch Clark taking on Alex White. It's okay. Luis Henrique versus Arjan Bular, who apparently is going to walk out with some WWE champ, who is also of Indian descent. 
And then Cajun Johnson got a fight against Adriano Martins. And I'm doing him a ton of favors, though, because Martins is a bad dude. Um, so the whole card has got something interesting. I mean, there's a couple of duds here or there, but it's pretty great, man. It's pretty great, especially for that main card. This is the kind of card where, um, you know, not a ton of star power, even collectively, but a ton of stakes and a ton of really, really, really talented fighters. I think if you're a fight fan, you should be very much looking forward to this. If you want to pass, pass. In fact, I might have to because I have a friend's birthday. I'm still trying to work that out, but, um, the, this is this is a great card. I mean, there's not a lot of criticisms you can make of it other than, well, it doesn't have the kind of star power to sell big big numbers. Let the UFC worry about that. Are you a fight fan or are you not a fight fan? Because if you are a fight fan, you've got plenty here to chew on. And storylines as well, right? Um, there's this moment of the returning Gilbert Melendez. What's next for him in this last chapter of his career? What, what should be his last chapter of his career? Tyson Pedro, can he break through? Rafael dos Anjos, which one of these guys, him or Neil Magny, is going to make any kind of real noise at welterweight? Obviously, you have the title fight between Shevchenko and Nunez. This is their rubber match or their rematch, depending on how you want to look at it. It's for a title. Shevchenko, a previous decorated champion in another sport, coming over here, getting better and better and better and better. Um, their first fight had an interesting narrative to it. And then, of course, you get Demetrius Johnson versus Ray Borg. Ray Borg, I think, is a little bit underrated. Probably not as good as Demetrius Johnson, but... If Demetrius Johnson wins, he breaks the record for the all-time number of consecutive title defenses in the UFC. So um, there's a lot to like. There's a lot to like. Volkan Uzdemir's chances against Cormier. It looks like DC is going to either be the light heavyweight champion again or fight for a vacant title. Man. If he was to be matched up with Uzdemir, what could Uzdemir take from the losses to John Jones and struggles against Gustafsson? as a path to victory. Well, one, he has that weakness that they talked about quite literally for years on the uh, right side in terms of how he dips. But I think more than that, takedown defense, if you can strike with him, there are, there are openings that reveal themselves. In the case of Gustafson, it was in the clinch. In the case of Jones, it was at range. Um, and he has this sort of come forward pressure style, which makes it semi-predictable. It's just if you if he can wrestle with you and mix it up and mute your offensive willingness to participate in any kind of exchange, it, it becomes a lot more difficult. So um, Gustafson was able to shut down a lot of the takedowns. John Jones, same. And so they were able to make these essentially where they were relevant, striking contests. I mean, just look at Cormier's career. Where has he ever had trouble? Even with Anderson Silva. It's not like he's a bad striker. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying really good strikers – over time, given enough time, they eventually just find an opening, whether it's to the body, whether it's to the way he dips, whether it's from laziness in a position in the clinch because he thinks he's strong there. It doesn't matter. They eventually just find a way to, to worm through. Um, and so if I'm Uzdemir, I'm saying to myself, my takedown defense needs to be lights out. It needs to be lights out because if it's not, I'm going to have problems. When asking what's know what, if you know what's next for Gastelum, yes, of course. He is facing Anderson Silva coming up. The fight there originally we we're gonna make. Chael Sonnen. What was the real story behind Chael Sonnen being allowed out of his UFC contract to join Bellator? I don't know. There's some controversy about this. Did he say something on his radio show about it? I didn't hear. Do you like wine, Luke? Uh, not as much as I used to, but I mean, 
everyone should like wine, right? If so, what's your favorite kind of wine? Uh, also, everyone likes to ask you what donks order for beers. Well, what do donks get for wine? Arbor Mist? What do donks get for wine? Like, I mean, look, it all depends. I said this in the Big Brown Breakdown, too. If you're just trying to get torn up, then you drink Arbor Mist or Yellowtail or I don't know. If you're looking for, uh, how, how, I'll put it like this. If you're looking for a easy recommendation to take to a party for a wine that'll get you torn up, uh, it's a, it's, it's actually, I'm going to recommend what I would call an overrated wine, but um, relative to its reputation, it's actually a good wine, but its reputation is a little bit oversold. Um, get uh, get anything cake bread makes, and in particular, cake bread Chardonnay. Again, I'm not recommending this to you as some kind of like, oh my God, Chardonnay. For folks who may not know, Chardonnay typically has an 18% or greater ABV. So when you serve that at a party, people get sauced up, chilling in the cut. And cake bread uh, makes a lot of what I would call very palatable wines for the ladies of Orange County, right? You can imagine what kind of wine drinker that is. Um, so here we go. Cake bread Chardonnay. Can't go wrong. All the white girls will love it. Trust me. Uh, okay. And what's the real story behind Chelsea on his contract? I don't know. I don't know if he said something recently. If he says it recently, I, don't, I, I did not hear it. So I don't know. I can talk to him about it. More questions about old Tom Dukenois. Um, hey, Luke, this isn't a question so much as a request. I'm subscribed to your channel on YouTube. Thank you. This means I get alerts on my phone when you post a thing, which I appreciate. In the future, could you not write the results of what happens in a fight after, after a fight happens in the title of your video? I am referencing Floyd Mayweather, TKO's Conor McGregor. Up to now, it's been UFC Fight Night 112 results or some such. Thank you. Yes, I will go back to not putting that in the headline, but just so someone knows... Someone is saying titling the videos as he does helps with the YouTube SEO, and this is live sports, not TV. Most people know the results. I, I do think I'm well within my rights to put those results in the video post, but everybody loses their mind about it. So uh, I, I'm going to go. Don't worry. I'm going to go back to just putting there the results, and then I'll put post fight special at the end or something like that. I'm not going to put any more in there, but I put those explicitly in the Mayweather versus. Um, McGregor won for two reasons. One, this was such a big fight. I thought the majority of people who are going to watch us are watching this live. And number two, it does help with SEO. To have the words Mayweather versus McGregor results is good for SEO. Then on top of that, to have the full names, Conor McGregor, Floyd Mayweather, and to have TKO in there, those are all critically essential for SEO, which is why that video did over half a, um, half a million views. So... I don't regret it doing it for that one, but yes, I will go back to not doing that. So don't worry. Pay-per-view schedule, not enough stars. Hi, Luke. The UFC schedule seems to exist independent of the fighters available to sell each pay-per-view event. There are a set number of pay-per-view events, but not enough stars to generate respectable pay-per-view buy rates. This in turn creates a discussion about how badly event XYZ did which I feel devalues both the overall product and the fighters themselves. It seems like the UFC is in an inevitable position, excuse me, an unenviable position of having their revenue streams tied to pay-per-view events they can't consistently craft into enticing purchases and FS1 events that are so bloated that I've personally stopped watching them live. In fact, the most enjoyable events from a home viewing perspective 
and the ones with the least known talent fight pass card. Um, with the TV rights deal renewing coming up, do you have any insight or ideas about how to better serve the product? Well, this is something I've been saying for a long time. I've long thought that um, there was an oversaturation problem, and inevitably you can look at all of their numbers from their heyday on Spike, and there's been people like, where's the evidence for it? I mean, tons. Uh, look at the ratings of Ultimate Fighter. Look at the ratings for the average fight night versus what they used to be. Look at the pay-per-view buy rates based on what they used to be. We're living in a time of baked-in results. Like, the numbers are all down. I just felt like 2016 was this sort of weird outlier because you had Ronda doing what she was doing and Connor tearing up the world. And and I think it kind of shielded things because it created this sort of halo over the sport that you're now beginning to see is uh, a little bit more laid bare. If there are stars in the sport, people are either more forgiving of the product generally or more interested in it even when it doesn't in include the star. But when that star goes, when that star goes away um, the, and the product gets laid bare for what it is, you, you see a lot more grumbling, which is something I didn't quite appreciate until I think now. In any event, whether or not you believe in oversaturation or not, I think the, the dynamic you're discussing is, is you're not alone. I've, I've heard this complaint from a number of times. I mean, look, I think there's a new reality about pay-per-view. Like you, you can look at Mayweather versus McGregor, and it maybe, maybe it matches or breaks the pay-per-view record for uh, Mayweather-Pacquiao um, or doesn't. But either way, it's going to break four mil, right? That seems to be the trajectory it's on. You know, two fights in the history of fighting have ever broken three, which are the same ones that broke four. Uh, Mayweather versus Pacquiao, Mayweather versus McGregor. And you can say, wow, those happened two years apart. And the first one of those two sucked. Like, you know, pay-per-view is still alive, be it for boxing or MMA. You just had the John Jones one, UFC 214. Now he's gone, but it did good numbers, right? Or he's gone for now or whatever the situation is. And it did what, 8, 850, 860, somewhere around there? I mean, it did really good numbers. That, that That's a home run by any measurement. Um, and so is pay-per-view alive and well? And I think the real answer to that is no. I think the answer to that is it, people people are perfectly willing to pay for a product in this case, um, not the UFC generally, but um, an individual event, if they see it's worth their while, right? Like, oh man, it's got a huge amount of star power. That's usually the guiding force there. Um, huge amount of star power and a hugely important rivalry. Man, I can't miss this one. I'm going to watch it. And I think you can do quite well on pay-per-view in those capacities. But in a rotating schedule, in a rotating diet, where it's this constant you know, glut of just pay-per-view, right? Does pay-per-view work then? I think that is a much more different and difficult question to answer. And I think what we're seeing is that as a routine matter of procedure, pay-per-view doesn't offer the same value that it once did. As a means to sell your very, very, very premium content. Now, I was talking about premium content before, the stuff that goes on TV and the stuff that goes on pay-per-view. The cream of the crop of that. Now, that can go, that can go on pay-per-view. Uh, yes, that, that really is quite well suited. Is the rest of it? I don't know. I don't. I don't know if that's the way that it works. Uh, there, there's a real serious open debate about that now. And the question is, if that's not the case, then what do you do? You'll recall, I believe it was Front Row Brian who had initially reported um, that the that the WME was at least considering tapering back on the number of pay per views in an effort, probably to make them more stacked, but also to sell more to these television companies so that you get the better content, right? We're going to give, we're going to have, I think it was something like they did 11 or 12 or even 13 pay-per-views one year. We're going to scale back to like eight 
And in that difference, we're going to give you all of that onto television. I think it's probably not a bad idea, especially if what you really need is that consistent income for licensing fees. Uh, so in answering your question, I think this initial model that they built out where they did, they went from six pay-per-views a year to eight to nine to 10 to 12. I think they're 14 at one point. Um, this was built on a time when there was incredibly high enthusiasm for the product and the product had a reliable audience that could just keep purchasing things uh, and would be willing to purchase things month over month because there may have been this uh, enthusiasm for the sport and it's relatively nascent in terms of the major market stages. Um, it was this, I think the UFC fan base used to be incredibly loyal to the UFC. I think to a strong degree they still are, but it, it, even more so back in the day. And there was a rotating cast of characters characters they could reasonably rely upon. And the sport is different today. People are perfectly willing to buy the big name fights. They'll, they will shell out in huge numbers. But everything that's less than that, they seem a lot more tech. Did I lose you? We back. We back. I don't know if I lost you or not, but I'm back. There we are. I, I don't know if you had any kind of interruption. If you did, I apologize. We should be good now. Yes? Yes. Sorry about that. Yes, I think we're good. All right. Sorry about that. This technology is just not loyal. Okay. Here we are. Are we back now? I think we're back now. Check, check. Let's see. Let me check Twitter. All right. I think we're back. Not too many complaints. Sorry about that. Uh, what is the status of the leg lock revolution? For a while, there was talk about how leg locks might change the MMA metagame as people started learning Sambo and BJJ techniques that use leg locks to sweep or submit opponents. Coaches like Faraz Zahabi and John Danaher have talked extensively about all the things you can do with leg locks. I haven't really noticed a big change, people using leg locks to sweep or submit in the UFC. Would you say about the status of leg locks in the current MMA metagame? What would you say? Uh, well, it's been a dramatic shift. Let me just keep this up so I can see if it bottoms out on us. It's been a dramatic shift in, uh, in jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu has tremendously revolutionized over the last... I don't know how many years um, with the not it, leg locks were always a part things like toe holds, knee bars, but uh, the degree to which heel hooking, uh, leg entanglements, additional guards, 50-50 guard to an extent, 
you know, there's a lot of X guard knee bars being set up and things like that. Now, um, that has dramatically grown. Even leg entanglements for things like back takes has grown, but it hasn't made its way over to MMA just yet. You've seen guys who are incredible heel hookers, like a Husamal Pralharas or an Ian Entwistle, and they have success driving that kind of game. Um, but that's just that's just leg locking by itself. It's not really a full complement or some kind of adaptation. You're not seeing a lot of uh, you're not seeing a lot of De La Hiva guards turning into Barambolos, turning into back takes. I think that would be a big. Remember, it's not. It's it's you have to remember it's not merely leg locks as such, heel hooks, toe holds, you know, knee bars. It's also, as you mentioned, sweeps and things like that, but it's more than that. It's just the notion of the expanded use of the body. Before there was the legs were the guard, and you use the legs maybe to shrimp, you use the legs for the guard, you use the legs even to finish an arm bar. People don't realize that the legs are crucial in finishing an arm bar, whether it's from the guard or on the mount. But it wasn't this more complete sense of things you could do with them. What has happened is that a lot of jujitsu was frankly just upper body, especially as it related to submissions, wrist locks, arm bars, shoulder cranks, chokes, lapel chokes, um, things like that. But there wasn't, especially with the gi, they've outlawed a lot of things. Like in, in the gi, you can't do heel hooks. You can do knee bars and you can do toe holds, but you can't do heel hooks, right? Because you can't pull out. And so I think that mindset, once no gi grappling became a much more forceful uh, independent presence of gi jiu-jitsu, it developed, and there's a lot of things that have been developed in the gi too, worm guard and whatnot. I'm not saying there was no innovation on the gi side, but certainly the no gi side because it's always had a little bit of a closer relationship to MMA. Um, it developed a lot of these different tactics and it has come full circle. A lot of gi has picked them up now, um, but you just don't see, you just don't see a lot of it in MMA. I've seen Barambolos attempted, uh, but not a lot of them. Um, successful anyway. The best one I saw was um, shout outs to Shoeface and Eric Spicely. That's about, that's about, you want to talk about modern jujitsu, 50 50 guards, attempted barambolos, things like that. Those guys did that. Um, leg drag passes, uh, all kinds of X guard, all that stuff was in that, was in that match. That is, that is what I'm talking about. Modern jujitsu. No gi or gi, whatever, played out into MMA, which ma which makes much fuller use of the body. Um, Eric Spicely and Shoeface gave you a look of that. Go check. I forget which card that was on, but if it's on Fight Pass, go check that out. That is modern. That's what that's what modern jujitsu looks like in an MMA context. Better than I've ever seen in any other MMA fight. There's, then look, Shoeface and Eric Spicely have tremendous jujitsu, but are they the very best players on earth? No. Although Shoeface was obviously incredibly decorated, but. Um, you don't need to be. You just have to have a sense of a modern game and, and have some modern application for it. So it might be coming. It's a little slower than we thought. There's a lot of things that work in gi that don't work in no gi. There's a lot of things that work in no gi that don't work in MMA. And so it's a lot of changes and drop-offs. And I think just finding someone who's willing to experiment like a shoe face, like an Eric Spicely, and make those things work, um, we'll get more of it. But, but it's just going to be a, a process of time. Would you be the first in line to buy a Mighty Johnson t-shirt? Yeah, he says he's changing his name. <laughs> I don't know that I like that nickname better. I mean, maybe there's some trademark issues. He can't do much with it. I don't I don't really, I don't I don't know what the issue is, but you know, obviously Mighty Mouse is uh, owned by somebody else, but I, I don't know what I don't know what that's about.
but we're back. So no, I won't be the first to buy that. But I will say this. I, I thought that um can we talk about those Reebok kits for just a moment and then this legacy series thing with the walkout tees? I want to give credit where credit is due, but I don't want to give too much credit, which might be the story of my career. Um, so they, they made a lot of improvements. They made a lot of improvements. Let's start with those legacy series tees. I think it's a great idea. Now, I, I would imagine that, I would hope, and I'm going to try and find this out, that the fighters get a big cut of that. Um, but let's assume that's true. It may not be, but let's assume it's true. Do, did I like all four of the designs for Rayborg and Johnson and Valentina Shevchenko and Amanda Nunes? No. But one of the things I did like was, one, it creates some fighter identity, and it preserves it, which I liked. Two, it put the Reebok and UFC logos here. Nothing, the, the, the fighter had the center panel, which I really appreciated as well. I thought that was important. Um, so I thought all those things were good. And again, if the fighters get a cut of it, this is even better. My problems were, one, it was like, well, maybe Demetrius Johnson's going to change his name, but I don't like Mighty as much. As, I mean, it's not it's a fine nickname, but it's not like Mighty. Mighty Mouse is just way cooler. Now, what you can do with that, what you can't do with that, I don't know. So maybe he was forced into it. But for example, Bullet Shevchenko, you know, she showed up to press row uh, our media row when I was in Vegas and she had a 762, I believe it was a NATO round necklace. You know, she had a bullet necklace. Her nickname is bullet. She has a tattoo of a Glock, either 17 or a Glock 19 on her hip. And I realized you want to stray from certain imagery that, you know, the DC team used to be the Washington bullets. Now they're the wizards and the wizards. Are so, so incredibly lame, but they want to avoid at the time the city was having a bit of a crime problem back in the eighties you know, certain kinds of imagery, which I can appreciate, but like, okay, it's a big part of her identity. There's nothing really in there. It's a fine design. There's nothing really about it. The Ray Borg one's actually pretty good. I really like the Ray Borg one. I thought they did a pretty good job with that. And the Amanda Nunes one, I, I appreciate they used lioness, but go look at that lion. It's not even as good as McGregor's tiger tattoo. It's, not, it's just not a very good lion. And so it's like, I, I like they're getting there. They're iterative. And that's the same thing you could say about the fight kits. Like, are these new fight kits better than the last ones? Who could say otherwise? Of course, they're, they are absolutely better, but they're iterative. It's like they've been making progress all along where they had this, you know, white on black, black on white, and then they were managed to upgrade to the point where they had, you know, if you're a Brazilian fighter, you could have all yellow on, or if you're a Canadian, all red and black or something like that. They're, they've kept a lot of that. They've cleaned that up a little bit. They've sharpened that up a little bit, but the fighters' names are still spelled the same way on the shorts. There's not a whole lot new about that. They're still spelled the same way on the back of the hoodie. Is it really going to entice people to buy? Here's my point. They've definitely made some improvements. There's nothing you could look at this line and say, well, this is bad. Oh, my God, what are you guys thinking? And far from it. Uh, in general, I think I'd give them a passing grade, but that's just about all I'd give them. It's just about a passing grade. It just feels to me like, are there a lot of people there who are working hard, who are trying to get it right? Yes. But I kind of feel like with the amount of backlash that they got after the first round of kits, they took the safer approach by just iterating the existing kits on the path they were on. And when you look at the artwork designed for the Legacy Series, and these might get better, I think they have hired Boss Logic, not for these before, separate line of t-shirts. So let's, maybe we can't even give them a grade, maybe it has to be incomplete. But I think my issue is that there's, there's just not a lot of super, there's not a lot of talented art designers there. The artwork is lacking. 
and the amount of criticism appears to have scarred them from making bold decision making. You know, they they put that first line of kits out incredibly fast, and they had to live with them for a very long time, and it just really kind of they got banged up real bad on that uh, from a PR standpoint, and I think that kind of hurt them and made them maybe a little bit more reluctant to try something when they felt like they they had made some progress with those kits over the over the uh, over the months to the point where um, now they've got an even cleaner look and they fixed some of the the way in which they are constructed, especially for the women. And that's all fine, man. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's uh, it just feels to me like there's just I don't know. You get a brand like Adidas, right? I wore my uh, I wore two two jerseys yesterday for good luck, neither of which helped a whole lot. But um, and I'm, I don't believe in luck. I'm just saying, you know, just for fun, I guess. Um, I had my Columbia jersey on in the morning. And it has, they're made by Adidas. What does Adidas have, whether it's a jersey or anything else? It's the three stripes that go all the way down, right? This iconic kind of stitching and, and design and logo and iconography, really. Same with Nike, with swoosh. And that's the one who makes my U.S. jersey, right? Um, Reebok just doesn't have anything like that. It's not even just about what the logo of the brand is. I mean, the three stripes are a logo, but they just encompass so much of the of the uh, garment or whatever you want to call it. Um, Reebok lacks that, so that's where you have this incredible need for strong artistic work. And again, I don't think these new kits are bad, and I don't think those Legacy Series t-shirts are bad, and let's see what Boss Logic can do. Maybe they can really move forward with this. But they need to get somebody in the, involved in this product that they really want to turn a corner who's willing to make some bold, interesting ideas. They should have had something involving a bullet on the T-shirt of Valentina Shevchenko. I'm sorry. You should have. That's her nickname, man. She carries a bullet chain. Uh, and there's just not, I mean, it's just sort of a nice design. It's just, come on, man. This You want to be involved with fighters who, uh, the, you know, you got, you got to get a little rough around the edges sometimes. You need to make bold decisions. Careful ones, smart ones, you know. I don't think being careful and being bold are mutually exclusive. You have to have a bold idea, and then you have to, you know, um, do your due diligence about it. But I just think that I think that they were so they were like a beaten dog after that first round of criticism that they didn't want to go too far with these kits, and they didn't. Nick Diaz update. None. Cain Velasquez update. That's a little harder to come by. Carlos Condit. Uh, I have not heard he's coming back. And John Lineker. I don't know what his next fight is. Oh, I meant to see this and I haven't. Uh, did you hear Cody and Uriah's story about TJ kneeing Holdsworth in the back of the head after getting tapped and sparring, causing the concussion issues that have derailed his career? Do you believe that if this was true? TJ would have been kicked off the team and had charges fall. Okay, I've not seen the video, so I'm only going to say this as much. If that's what somebody did on your team, why are you mad they tried to leave? That's what I don't understand. If somebody really did that on your team, and I'm not saying he didn't. Maybe he did. I don't I don't it, I'm just saying what I don't understand. What I don't understand is cuz I like TJ and I like Cody and I like Uriah and I uh they're all smart guys. What I can't wrap my head around is if someone did that in your gym and really jacked up somebody else like that, um, why would you want to keep them around? 
you would ask them to leave. I've seen people kicked out of gyms for a lot less. Trust me. Look at the look at D Dylan Dennis got kicked out of Marcelo's gym. He has black belt from Marcelo. He got kicked out of his gym for social media. You know what I mean? I have seen dudes kicked out of gyms for a lot less than that. I have seen jujitsu instructors come and go for a lot less than that. So I just don't understand if someone did that, why you would keep them around. Now it's different when you've got an elite prize fighter on your hands. You, I guess you make some concessions. Maybe that's it. I don't. I don't really know. I don't really know what the answer is, but. Uh, will the UFC ever allow fun walkouts? Not as long as Dana White is around. He just doesn't like him and doesn't want him. So if he goes, maybe they can change. But until then, no. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine, at LThomasNews on Twitter. And you can use the hashtag chat wrappers. I will look at Twitter now and take your questions. Um, what did you do in the military? Who is this? Um, artillery. I was on the hill for artillery. So those big cannons, those howitzers that go boom, they can't see where they're firing. They need someone close to the target who can look at it on a map, tell them the coordinates to fire, and try to hit it. And artillery is not a direct shot weapon. It's an area weapon. Um, you just need to do it. The Russians actually invented modern um, artillery strategy. It's called bracketing. So if, you, if your target is this, if your target is in the center, you overshoot, then you undershoot on purpose, and then you kind of get closer to closer. If you get a direct hit, that's great, but you don't need one. A lot of these have like a 150-meter kill radius, depending on what round you're using. So, artillery. Um, boxing in November for cancer research in the UK. If anyone would like to donate, the link is in my pinned tweet. Thank you. You can use the hashtag chat rappers and find this person's tweet. There you go. How good is Amanda's striking compared to the first Shevchenko's fight? Ooh. I think striking-wise, what wound up happening was you saw Shevchenko muted and had trouble with the reach of Amanda. If she can really push her back and get inside the reach and force Amanda to the pocket, create angles, get inside, um, she can have a lot of success. If she's going to be offensively muted and get – she, I mean, we talked about how you can't give rounds away in MMA. Like people say, well, you should borrow Mayweather's strategy for Connor and – to an extent, you should. We talked about that last week where you make him work. You just don't strike with him early at all. But you can't take rounds off. You saw what happened. Shevchenko took rounds off. I'm sure she wanted to win them, but she was just so offensively muted. There was no realistic possible way she could have done it. Sure, it was some kind of miracle. She took those rounds off and she lost. You cannot give away, especially in a three round contest. When Nate beats Connor again, will Connor ask for a fourth fight in boxing? Uh, no. Who are the best fighters to watch to learn from? Holloway and Whitaker? That's an interesting question. I would actually say, uh, sure, those guys are great to learn from. Number one, you can learn something from every fighter. And this, this is really what I would recommend. If you want to learn something from uh, from fighters, um, you know, look, some of these guys are exemplars of any kind of... Uh, you know, skill or talent or character or whatever you want. If you, the best recommendation is to watch all, all fighters because guys will do things differently through weight classes. Guys will do things differently through eras. Um, guys will do things differently through styles. And you need to get a larger 
sense of what's happening to really appreciate some of the finer details. Yeah, so watching guys like Holloway matters. You should watch Crone Gracie, see what he's doing with jiu-jitsu in MMA. I think he's totally unique in some of the ways he's able to use jiu-jitsu. You should watch, um, who else did you mention? Whitaker, sure. Look at Whitaker as well. Um, Dillashaw versus Garbrandt should be kind of impressive. Um, Miocic should be kind of impressive. All, all these guys will teach you something different about fighting. It's not just one or two guys. While as amazing as those guys may be, watch all fighters. Even go to a local event. I keep telling people, go to local events. You'll get blood splattered on you, and uh, tickets will be cheap. You can learn something from them, too. You can learn how much harder it is to do something when you see it at the highest level. You know, I see people who go to regional MMA, and they're like, oh my God, these guys are no good. Well, first of all, those no good guys will probably smash you and, and me. And that should tell you something, that these guys who are, have been training for several years are not very good relative to what you're used to watching in the UFC. That's how hard it is to do what they do in the UFC. Bigger fraud, Sonnen or Kirk Cousins? Uh, how about, uh, no, the biggest fraud is, um, oh, who's that asswipe who just signed with the Broncos again? Brock Osweiler. I mean, he's not even really a, well, he's kind of a fraud because he took the money, but I mean, this guy had, I mean, what was his contract like 50 something million guaranteed 37 and 16, something insane. And he got it for getting released by the Browns. Good Lord. Has any fighter you've questioned actually received any money from fight kits? No. Can't find one. Not saying there isn't one. I just can't find them. Do you think Nike, Under Armour, or a big brand would make a bid for fight kits when the time comes? No. But they want all that bad press? Would John Jones have violated his parole, face jail time, if it's found that he deliberately took a ball? I don't know the terms of his probation. I don't think so. I don't think so. Noons is the closest comparison to Cyborg in any division. Probably. True or false? After Luke Rockhold finishes Branch, he gets a title shot. Probably. If, if he looks really good doing it. Uh, let's see here. In your opinion, what's one of the UFC's biggest missed opportunities? For me, it's not airing Bendo versus Guida and buying and, and burying it on Facebook. Well, they buried the entire card on Facebook. That was one. One, uh, let's see, that was a big missed opportunity. The other one was, uh, obviously, you can go back. I mean, not getting Fedor in the UFC was another one as well. Oh, we don't co-promote. You're going to co-promote with Connor, And you could say, well, Fedor's not Connor. He's not. But it would have been nice to have seen Fedor in the UFC, and they could have made a lot of money that way. Again, it would have it would have broken some rules, some cardinal rules about their brand, but it looks like they're going to break those anyway. At least we'll see. I mean, maybe not, but um, I don't know. I really think they could have made that work. You know, did it? Did it? Yeah, they could have made that work. What's your most overrated and underrated UFC fight of all time? Most underrated, it's my favorite, is Carl Parisian versus Diego Sanchez. And that's partly a context-driven thing. 
where you had to sort of be there at the time where no one really knew exactly what was going to happen in that contest. Diego had shown a tremendous amount of ability, but maybe it lacked a little bit of refinement. Caro was throwing people around like it was nobody's business. Didn't win all the fights, but won enough of them. And that was when Caro was at his absolute fiercest, you know, an absolute warrior. Um, he had lost a tooth, I think, in that contest through a knee that flew out of his jaw. Um, and, you know, he tossed Diego all over that goddamn octagon. And Diego just found a way to just stay in his face with a simpler but more direct game plan and annihilated him. Caro had amazing judo for MMA, one of the first guys who really did. But he had a little bit of that judo for judo that he couldn't quite get rid of, which by that I mean, you know, if you throw someone and it's an epon, you guys still might roll through where if it was MMA, they'd end up on top. It still has this combative tactical advantage that's irrelevant in judo. Like if you you know if you throw, if the throw lands fully and it's epon, then it doesn't matter. Um and so he still had a little bit of that. He would over rotate on some of these throws and Diego would get just right up. But it was a dog fight through all three of it. That was when the UFC was still putting on or did just started putting on um, UFC fight nights. And this was one I believe I remember this being in the middle of a weekday afternoon. And I had watched that fight by myself. And it was like it was just so it was so fun. It was really, 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 really fun. That's when, you know, he had an appetite for three round fights. Today I don't know that it would it would be as impactful but at the time it was one of those for me one of my favorite fights ever i really really love that fight uh overrated fight um was it a ufc fight yeah overrated ufc fight of all time which was overrated UFC fight. i mean it's obviously incredibly important but if you go back and you watch griffin versus bonner one not that great uh by relative standards now we're grading on it a totally unfair curve because at the time that was an amazing contest and blah blah blah, you know, like it did everything it, they said it did for the most part. But uh, yeah, if you go back and you watch it now, you're like, I don't get what's so great about this. Um, so maybe that one is that a Brian Shaw T-shirt? Yes, it is. I love Brian Shaw. Uh, he did not win the most recent World Strongest Man. Credit to Half Thor. And um, Eddie Hall for being the two guys who were well. Eddie Hall won. Half Thor may have been cheated, but those are the two guys who were pulled away from the pack. But uh, Brian Shaw, three-time world champion, world's strongest man. So after last night, the Americans looking like absolute dog s in Honduras. It's nice to have at least one American athlete who can show up uh, and do well. With the success of May Mac, are there any rumblings about Showtime getting back in the MMA business? Not that I have heard. Um, Steven Espinosa always had an appetite for it. There just didn't make any sense with any kind of league or um, any partner. Bellator is with Spike, or Paramount, as it's about to be called here soon enough. And Invictus tied up. Like, who, who are they really going to go with? It's not that they don't want to. It's just there's no one out there that really is befitting of the Showtime platform. Can you explain in layman's terms why the media is so focused on pay-per-view numbers when they don't work for the UFC? Yeah, uh, I've, I've answered this a number of times, um, but I'll answer it one more time. It's not just pay-per-view numbers. It's gate receipts. It is, um, it is uh, television ratings. It is a lot of different measurements of business success. And the reason why I explain it as such is because, number one, 
we are talking about a star-driven business. That is what combat sports is. It's true in boxing. It's true in MMA. It's true in a lot of combat sports, less so in jiu-jitsu, but even then, to an extent, it matters. This is a sport driven by star power. And so understanding who has it and to what extent they have it informs your judgment about what about how the business moves and why it moves and what decisions that the, the, the various stakeholders make, number one. Number two, there's another very important reason to pay attention to it. Obsessively, I don't know, but paying attention to it, yes. Namely, that because it is star-driven and the history of MMA, particularly in Brazil in the 20th century shows, as I also mentioned this in the Big Brown Breakdown, MMA is a, and combat sports generally are boom and bust sports. They have high periods of growth and then they drop off. Then they have high periods of growth and they drop off. And we are part of the drop-off cycle. And there's not much we can do about it other than to tolerate it. That's just what it's going to be. It's going to be a while, I think, before we have a bunch of crop of new stars that are really, you know, transforming the business. Conor McGregor's still around. There's Nate Diaz still around. It's not in a down year. It means you have nothing. It just means relative to your high point, you don't have nearly as much. I don't think it's a very controversial statement. This is a sport because it's based on star power. It naturally goes through this kind of cycle in ways that other sports aren't nearly as prone to, right? So paying attention to who's doing business, how much business they're doing, and in what way informs your judgment about the health of the sport and um, its potential future and what it might look like. This is a sport, as I like to say, that is much closer to the ground than other sports. There's a certain amount of baked-in support for American football. Europeans watching this may not like the sport. You may not understand the sport. You may hate it. That's fine. You have to understand on various nights and various Sunday afternoons, 30 million people are going to watch it. It's just how it is. And it could be the Buccaneers versus the Jaguars. Jaguars, two, you know, dog-ass teams. Doesn't matter. Well, Tampa's a little bit better, but you get the idea. Uh they don't nearly have to be as obsessive about what the ratings are. And even then, they're pretty obsessed about it. But it's because there's just a certain amount of popularity baked in. MMA does not have those kinds of luxuries. There's not a baked-in amount of support for fist fighting. There's intrigue about it, particularly at the high end. But at the middle to low end, um, it's it, it is an exponential drop-off. And so understanding what's happening with pay-per-view buy rates, understanding what's happening with television ratings gives you a sense of, of where things are, um, not merely at the present moment, but in a larger macro cycle. Um, and so, so that's why we do it. Do I expect fans to keep up with it? No, I don't. Um, if fans just want to watch good fights, then fans should just watch good fights. And there's nothing wrong with that. But MMA media should pay attention to it, at least in some capacity. If passing familiarity with the ratings and the buy rates and things like that, these tell you what this is. This is the, you know, if you're a, if you're a, um, coroner and you're looking at a dead body and trying to figure out how this person died i mean it's, maybe that's an imprecise analogy but or, or even a metaphor but um it's something like that you're looking at the results of something and trying to piece together what it tells you and and these are not always the perfect answer but they're a really good one especially over time okay let's do one more of these real quickly i'm going to be in dc the weekend of canelo triple g any tips for food bars etc in an area of Nats Stadium. Well, it's an expensive area. Blue Jacket is a um, is a good sports bar in that area. You can check out Blue Jacket right on the waterfront. It's by the District Winery. Um, if I were you, I would go up to Barracks Row, which is where the Marine Corps barracks are. You'll see Marines in machine guns walking the streets. But there's a ton of super awesome bars on there. Lola's is out there. Um, 
what else is out there? Oh, there's, a, there's just a gazillion of them. That's a good place to check them out. You could check them out on Pennsylvania Avenue, right by Eastern Market. There's a lot there. You can go to DuPont Circle. Buffalo Billiards will be showing the fights, guaranteed. There's a thousand screens there. Green Turtle at the Verizon Center. Any of those will do you right. Uh, last one. Anything stopping a rich fighter from making supplements via a dummy corp to back up cover story if they get caught? No, other than they won't make any money, and why would they do that? But no, there's nothing stopping them, I suppose. All right. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Sorry about that 10-second issue there. I apologize. I'm not sure what happened, but it's Google. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Uh, stay tuned because Ariel and the crew, they are in Edmonton. So I don't know what the schedule is for fighter workouts and press conferences and whatnot, but that should start today. There is an MMA beat this week. And uh, yeah, so stay around. Subscribe to MMA Fighting. Give the video a like. And uh, I will see you guys next time. And until then, stay frosty.